BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, Divided We Stand. In our deep dive today, how can it be that fundamentally different conceptions of reality seem to exist among Americans with respect to the election, the media, and the fairness of their platforms? And in our Courage or Cringe segment, Governor Northam of Virginia, Goya's Employee of the Month, and the Cleveland Indians. Are elected officials entitled to add religious opinions to their executive actions, or do those automatically encroach on our First Amendment? Should CEO opinions be visible in the social realm, or should those CEOs focus on running their business in a nonpartisan way? And finally, do sports teams have a responsibility to ensure their team names and mascots are unoffensive, or should fans be a bit more flexible? These items, and I'm sure some more, on this episode of TDR. All right, Jesus, welcome back. Welcome back. Got our new uh, setup in the uh, the old studio. I know. Trying to get the I'm, audio I'm to be. I'm curious to see how people will be able to tell the difference. Nobody will notice. <laughs> no one notice. Actually, not even not even I will really notice. <laughs> but I'll convince myself that I actually do hear things. Right, right, right. There's there's a podcast that I listen to called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, which I recommend to anybody who is interested in kind of like mysteries and kind of detective like stuff. And he was talking. One of the shows was. I don't think he's actually done it, but one of the shows that he's going to be doing is about this apparent sound that many people in Taos, New Mexico seem to hear, like just random humming that people seem to hear. And one of the theories that he has is like, you know, you can suggest to yourself a lot of things. Like if you sit there and just listen to static long enough, you may actually begin because the brain does patterns. Mm-hmm. So maybe able to find kind of patterns. Anyway, that's me with audio. Like I, <laughs> I, I will sit there and obsess over every, every word. And, um, you know, as I told our producer, I think I, I mentioned to you that, I'm not, I, I, I'd love for people to love all the content here, but this will be the best sounding podcast on the planet. That's my goal. I'm so, just glad you, you care that much because <laughs> if you didn't, man, we'll be in trouble because uh, I can't tell half the time. Well, I mean, I could tell the extremes, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. I've, I've even realized that now. I even cringe when I hear some of those that are super echoey, et cetera. Oh my gosh. So I've gotten better. There's at, so many at, of them. My ear has gotten better. There you at, go. At, at, you know, there you pick go. Up the differences, well, I guess. That is my quest. Okay. So we've got an exciting show. Very interesting deep dive topic, which probably could go the distance of the whole show time, but we're going to have to probably parse things out because it's a pretty deep topic. So we've got a lot to get into, but before we do, I did want to talk about our sponsor for this episode of the Diversity Remix, and our sponsor is Sofisa.org, S-O-F-E-S-A dot O-R-G. Sofisa is a labor of love. That's actually of my and my wife's. How would you say that grammatically? My wife and and mine? Yeah, you're asking the wrong person. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my wife and I have a nonprofit. We've had it for about 20 years. It's called Sofisa, 
And um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. It serves homeless and low-income kids and their families here in Southern California. And the whole laser focus um, of this nonprofit is to help kids suspend survival mode. You know, Jesus, when you're, uh, you know, in, in situations where either you don't have a home or you're in kind of transient living situations, you're kind of trying to survive. And so um, you're not really thinking creatively. You're just thinking about what, what happens next at that moment. You're not able to kind of let your brain unspool and enjoy those kind of moments of creativity and community and things like that and ultimately grow in, in, in who you are. So our nonprofit, of which you've also been a benefactor and been involved with yourself, is really all about kind of helping kids ex- escape survival mode. We've been doing this for 20 years, and we do it principally by creating events throughout the year for these kids. And we've done everything over the years from trips to the theater, to cooking classes, to barbecues, to music concerts, to our largest event. And the reason why this... this um, message is coming out to you today of our Christmas of Hope celebration. Now, our Christmas of Hope celebration is usually an event that's physical, obviously. We bring together, I mean, you were, you know, you were involved last year, Jesus. We brought, I think, 117 kids together uh, for a really great night. Um, This year, very different because obviously there's COVID, so that tends to put a damper on things. It is our 14th year doing this uh, Christmas of Hope party. And even though we're not able to physically bring kids and their families together for this celebration, we're not going to let coronavirus stop us from experiencing the joy of Christmas. So over the next couple of weeks, um, as you listen to this podcast, if you're listening to this podcast, we will be safely and individually delivering to nearly 100 kids. Actually, it's actually now over 100 kids. 100 kids, a holiday package of gifts and resources that will make their Christmas feel brighter. And so uh, Sophisa humbly asks for your help in actually doing this. You can sponsor a child. Um, there is a $99 tax-deductible gift that sponsors one child so that they can receive a variety of items, uh, stuff stocking with gifts for each child. They get a gingerbread house. They get gift cards. They get grocery cards, a, um, personal uh, PPE, personal protection equipment, right? So face shields and hand sanitizers, masks, all that stuff. And of course, what every kid wants, which are toys, assorted, uh, a variety of assorted toys. So every kid gets a package of these things, and you can sponsor one of these kids for $99, a tax-deductible gift. To find out more, please go to sofisa.org, that is S-O-F-E-S-A dot O-R-G, and sponsor at least one kid, but certainly sponsor as many kids as you like, um, and help them have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So thank you to our friends at sofisa.org. All right, Jesus, big topic. I'll let you tee us off as you normally do. Where do we begin? <laughs> yeah. This is- How do we begin? <laughs> You know, I think we've been purposely staying out of not trying to talk too much about politics and specifically right. not about the election or the last few episodes. And mostly because it's been it's been so, you know, in all of our minds, I think collectively, mm-hmm. uh, it's been such an issue that it's been hard to sort of take a break from it. So we had purposely given a pause. But this data came out um, just this past week that I thought that we thought would be really interesting to actually talk about. So. There was a poll that was conducted by Gallup uh, in partnership with the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. And, uh, you know, this it was basically a survey that was done both pre-election, about a month before election, from, some, from September 24th through October 5th. That had about 1,500 respondents. And then a post-election survey that was completed between November 9th and the 15th, through the 15th, with another 20, 2,700 um, respondents, right? And a bunch of data came out of that as it relates to how people viewed 
the election process, how much they believed the results that were being um, uh, you know, communicated through media, their thought about sort of their, the view that the, the media played and how well informed people felt or disinformed for that matter. So great little nuggets all over the place. So this is what we want to be starting to parse out quite a bit. But let's start with the biggest one, which is frankly what when I saw this headline, mm-hmm. and once again, we look at headlines, we got to double click into them to make sure that it's not just a headline. Yep. It's what the, what the data is actually saying. But when I read this, it really shocked me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the headline was as follows, that 83% of Republicans that were polled by this Gallup study after the 2020 election said they didn't believe Joe Biden won. Mm-hmm. Right. And that by itself, uh, to me, kind of like it's like a pause, you know, stop the press is kind of kind of announced. When, when you see that, when you see such a large percentage of if you think about the number of people that consider us a Republican, of course, this is a sample size of that. But if that is if that holds true to the broader group, that is a very large share of Republicans that just don't believe the election process. Now, one thing to immediately start to sort of caveat here is this is relative to the time where this study was done, November 9th through the 12th. So the first thing that I did is immediately was like, well, what was happening around November 9th, right? And at that point, the election had already been called for Joe Biden as Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin had already been, been called, um, which at, at that point eclipsed the 270 electoral votes that are mm-hmm. required for, for a new president or for any president. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the exceptions in terms of states that hadn't been called yet was Arizona, I've been called by the broader media, but it had been called literally the night of election by Fox News and then I was followed by AP. In this case, Fox News being the very first one to call Arizona. Uh, but it wasn't until November 12th, which is basically after this time period, uh, of which the rest of the media, um, well, actually, I guess during this time period, of which the rest of the media um, uh, outlets uh, called Arizona as well. But this notion that, and we looked at the numbers, 63% of Americans uh, said they believe the news media projections of Joe Biden as the winner uh, of the election were accurate. Now, if you break it down between uh, between party, it was 99% of Democrats, which, you know, <laughs> that makes sense. Only one person. Only one person, only one <laughs> one person. person didn't think so. 99% of Democrats, 64% of independents. Which to me is like a really low number. Yeah, I guess it, it is. It actually is, right? If you think about it, right? Uh, and then 17% and then of Republicans. 17% of Republicans which yeah. is, that's what gets you to the 83% of Republicans, you know, polled right. that they didn't believe that Joe Biden had won, or at least the way that the, the media was calling it at the time, right? So once again, it's all relative to uh, to November uh, 9th through that period, 9th through the 14th. Um, obviously, a lot has changed since then. This, and a lot has been the same, by the way. A lot of these questions around the political process. But sure. before I get into anything else, I, I frankly struggle to understand how there could be such a large percentage of people that just didn't believe the process, uh, that it was inaccurate at that point. And, and you know, I've been actually looking forward to talking to you about this because, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that I think that I personally have been trying to be much better at is not having a overly simplistic point of view of, of Trump supporters or the Republican Party or basically people that have a different point of view than myself. But I got to be honest, if there's been a moment where it really questioned that that ability to sort of see things as nuanced, seeing a number like this is such a large number of a large group that just doesn't believe, or at least at that point, didn't believe the process. Yeah, for sure. Well, this study, I mean, brings to light a lot of the, what we've already known and talked about, and certainly the whole country's kind of caught up in it, this idea of this sort of deep divide and very um, polarized uh, moment that we're living in, because the data is all over the place. I mean, on, on all sides of the spectrum, and we'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. I think the, the one of the things that I thought about right away was... Um, 
the fact that across the board, the number was pretty low. Now, I know this is made up of average. This is like an average. So right. in a certain way, it's not very helpful, right? But the fact that only 63 people, percent of, the, of Americans that were polled, and this sample was like 2,000 people, something like that. So it's statistically very significant, right? Sure. 63% of Americans believed the results of the election. Like, yes, I understand that there was a huge swath of uh, yeah, dem- Democrats who did. Yeah, being dragged down by the Republican side. Well, not really, though. Look at the independents. The independents were 60-something percent. And it is, it is. I agree with you. That is surprising, right? That, that 64%, uh, basically two-thirds, right, of, 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 of independents, right. you know, uh, believe that the results are right. But right. when you have... Not even a third. I mean, not even 20%, yeah. even a fifth of, of, of Republicans sure. saying that they believe the process was correct. Well, and I think some of this, yeah, you know, like, well, I don't know how to respond to that. Well, you know? I, I can tell you that, and well, I'll tell you my thoughts on it. Am so, I being dramatic, Charlie? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think you're being dramatic. I just think that, you know, look, my thinking is none of this stuff has happened in a vacuum. Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. If we kind of woke up here, you know, let's say we were, I don't know, whatever, just pick a year and over the last 20 or 40 years, 30 years, and we just kind of woke up and suddenly this data happened this way, I'd be like, UFOs are landing, something's happening. Yeah. But nothing happens in a vacuum. And there's at least a few things that I think are part of this or something to at least allow us to consider. Number one is all of this is happening in the context of a, a pandemic. And the reality of the things that we've been living with in in 2020 and Mm -hmm. all of the, you know, again, we know some of the stats that are that are up economically or sorry, down economically. We all know that we all read all this stuff. But there's also been a pretty significant psychological and emotional toll over the course of this pandemic on all people. So anyway, we're in the context of a pandemic. The second thing is we've never before done, uh, you know, mail in voting ballots at this scale. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's also something new. It's the first time in history we've ever done it at this scale. Number three, we've got social media platforms that, by the way, the interesting thing about this study is, again, seven, it's like literally almost identical. 75% of Republicans, 75% of Democrats agree that the biggest problem in all of this is a social platform. So that we have total alignment on. But we're living in a world where there's deep, deep, deep agreement on the fact that social media platforms have created echo chambers Mm -hmm. and are moderating moderating conversations in a way that's not ideal. So that's also part of this equation. And lastly, again, for a lot of reasons that people can justify and that many which I agree with, nevertheless, we have a press that has been extraordinarily antagonistic Mm -hmm. to to this administration. So I think when I look at like how can something like this get to this point among independents and among Republicans, because I'm sure you're not the 99 percent of Democrats is like, great, they all agree. But I think we have to consider those four things in our thinking. It's not just like, are these people crazy? Yeah, it's not. The, is Are these people crazy? What, what is to me really interesting, though, about this, 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 this point here is that. That 70% of Republicans who, or let me better say, the 83% of Republicans who believe that the, that the, basically it was incorrect the way it was being called, that they didn't believe that Joe Biden had won by the 9th of November. It also means the same percentage not believing what Fox News was calling the entire time. Because that, that to me was actually really interesting, right? When you think about the role that most of us that are not, or the, for those of us that are not on the sort of the right side of the conversation or the right or the, on the left, we think of we tend to think of Fox News as sort of the the other extreme, right? If you have MSNBC on one side, you have Fox News, Fox News on the other, which everything they say, do, etc., is always going to be for the benefit of of President Trump, etc. Mm-hmm. But in this case of the election, 
they were the first one to call Arizona. Like weird. As a matter of fact, a lot of issues came out. There was there were reports that even President Trump was really upset about this. That they ended up calling, you know, uh, Rupert Mur- Murdoch to right. try to get him to change it. But Fox News has been very consistent in terms of calling the election for Joe Biden really early on, right? And and to the, and this distrust that you see here, it's like it feels like it happened overnight. That all of a sudden Fox News was no longer the press of choice. That all of a sudden was not part of the mainstream because Fox News position, at least if you hear. And it's obviously a big distinction between those that are in straight news versus those that are the pundits. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Right, but the pundits yeah. always talk about mainstream media as everyone else other than Fox News. But overnight, Fox News became the mainstream media as it relates to a lot of Republicans. When you have this higher percentage of Republicans who don't believe what Fox News is actually saying, forget everybody else. Look, I, I can understand how hardcore conservatives are never going to believe what MSNBC says. I get that. Just in the same way that you have hardcore liberals who may never believe what Fox News says. Okay, fine. Right. But when you have such a large percentage of Republicans that don't believe anymore what Fox News is saying because the outcome is not what they wanted it to be, like that's the part where that I don't I don't understand how overnight that happened. Well, okay, so a couple things. Number one is it's pretty clear over the course of the last several months that there's been a falling out of love of uh, the Trump administration and Fox News as their kind of channel to, you know, achieve their kind of PR aims or whatever, because Fox News would historically, if anybody had the president's back, it would be them in terms of either- They were t- critical to his his first presidency. Well, they were, they were critical to- they were, To him getting elected for that matter. They were critical to a lot of things. I mean, I th- but so so I hope that, that, so first of all, nevertheless, even though they were critical, whatever, the, Trump definitely started- hinting at the fact that Fox's ratings were dropping and all this other stuff as he saw that they were beginning to kind of maybe shift a little bit away from him. I don't know all the intricacies. I didn't do the research, but I could just as a, as a kind of consumer and watcher and and person who's, who's knowledgeable on what's going on in the media space. I noticed that. I do hope that this though, because you just made a statement really fast that I hope people are listened to, which is, I do hope that this lets people take another look at Fox news and maybe other networks sure. and to distinguish between who are pundits and who are news people. Mm-hmm. The people who were calling the election or like who were there with the, you know, with the things behind them in the map, those people for the most part, I really do believe. And they're, you know, they have new uh, daily newscasts. They call things pretty straight. Of course, they're going to have a lean. They're people, they have a yeah. lean, but they're pundits that, you know, uh, Sean Hannity, right? Tucker Carlson. Um, uh, what's her name? The woman we talked about on the uh, on a show previously. Um, blonde woman. Uh, I'm forgetting yeah. her name. Anyway, Laura Ingram. <laughs> Laura Ingram. Those Laura are people Ingram. who are opinion journalists, right? right? And so we need to be able to distinguish between that. And I think in the same way, we should do our best to distinguish somebody like you know Anderson Cooper, perhaps, or Jake Tapper from a uh, Rachel Maddow, right? So we have to be right. able to, to distinguish now. Let's also agree, because we're not all naive, that the distinction between straight news and pundit has blurred over the last four or five years. Right. And that's a problem. I think that's a big problem. Okay. So I do recognize that. But 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 just going back to your point though about this like number that you you can't wrap your head around, let's also bear in mind that this same study says that voters were worried about misinformation during this election. Yeah. More than four in five believe that they were exposed to misinformation and six out of ten including a, a majority of Republicans, but six out of 10 all told mm-hmm. thought that misinformation swayed the outcome of the election somehow. Yeah, that's a right. 
which is really interesting, right? It's it was 62% of Americans polled, right, that they thought that the outcome of the election was swayed by misinformation. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that broke out between Democrats and Republicans, 82% of Republicans and 46% of Democrats. What, what's most interesting about this is, um, you know, as I think when we, when we thought about the election, especially relative to 2016, there was a lot of concern about the role that foreign organization would have in actually trying to drive misinformation and and. A lot was done and said about the, you know, the role that Russia specifically played in the 2016 election and the fear that the, the role that it could play in 2020. Right. Uh, but it, what was interesting there is that what seemed to be the, the biggest threat was actually more domestic disinformation than anything Russia related. As a matter of fact, there was a, a report put out by The Washington Post uh, last month that, that said that Russian government did not mount any major social media influence campaigns. Uh, ahead of the 2020 election. Now, in part, could have been because there was it was such already top of mind to everyone. So all the social platforms themselves were very aggressive mm-hmm. of not getting caught like they did the first time, Facebook included, right? There was actually that. But part of what they said was was part of the reasons because they felt that Americans were already doing a good job of, you know, for them of this internal <laughs> misinformation, which is right. crazy. But there were some things, I mean, if we think about it, and like this is a part where I'm sure is there's definitely bias in my point of view here, but I do think about the level of misinformation that, Started with the president, right? The amount of misinformation around mail-in voting, to your point, and never had it been done before to this degree, but to also treat it like it was a some mass fraud that immediately would happen because of it sure. is ridiculous when it's been used in plenty of states. And he's been using it for years. It's it's right, there was that. Also the the such early signaling of well, accusation But one but one quick distinction though, because there is a difference between absentee ballots and mail in ballots. So absentee ballots have been used for a long time. And mail in have been and used for a long, long time. Both of them have. And in some states is is, is uh, statewide, meaning right. they send it to everybody. For sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. But on this scale and what I'm yeah, saying. In this scale, just, you're yeah. you're entirely right. In this scale, you're right. It's a, it's First time at this scale, but the accusations I think that did not help in the the, the cause is, that, and I do believe from the did president, did not help. Was no. uh, that specifically making it immediately found like like it was going to be fraud because of it, and and this notion the, of of planting the seed that the election was somehow going to get stolen, and that is going to it was going to have to go to the Supreme Court. Now this is something that President Trump has been talking about like since the summer, and, and I think it, it continues to build up. So there was already sort of the, the 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 sort of the groundwork being laid to have a lot of mistrust in this election because of all these reasons. And I think when the numbers started to come in and people saw that literally like all early early in the night, uh, President Trump winning in a number of different places. And as they started to continue the count, they started to get in more of those those uh, mail-in ballots, which by the way, in many cases, they were pushing to not allow the states to be able to count them before election night, right? And we could debate right or wrong of why the case, but then the dynamic it creates is that of people that are sending in their mail-in ballots, were more democratic because the democratic side of the of the of the, of the aisle was much more encouraging of that process. Then it is it's not necessarily a big surprise why you will see that kind of sway. But it all adds to the, this mix of a lot of distrust. Yeah, there's no question that that um, all of that. I look at it again, and you, you've heard me say this so many times. But you know, for the benefit of any of the of the folks listening, with respect to my thoughts on President Trump, is that he's first and foremost the kind of business tycoon that I've had either the misfortune or fortune, depending on the circumstances, to know quite well. And people like that are always thinking what the next step is, right? So maybe I'm feeling like I'm actually a little bit behind in this race, either because Biden is really strong, which I doubt, but more because people really hate me. And as many as, you know, because that's who voted, people who hate him and people who love him, right? Nobody right. nobody voted for Biden besides his wife, maybe. Um 
And so, so he's he's feeling. <laughs> he's, I'm letting that one go, but he, yeah, <laughs> he's feeling he's feeling like he's maybe going to lose. So now, what's the next thing? Okay, well, I need to start maybe in, introducing or injecting some some doubt into this, right. so that when I make the next case, which is, hey, there were some irregularities here. We should run these out, and there were some irregularities. There were a number of very clear affidavits and different things, but those things have a process, and you go through them, you research them, right. and then if the courts take them up, in which case the Supreme Court did not, then you have that is the process. That's the end of the process. In fact, today. When the Electoral College voted is the process. This is when you can officially say president-elect Biden because they've voted to elect him. So all of that has a process. But my point is he kind of played that that chess piece because that's what guys like this do. That's what guys like this do in my opinion. I'm not saying it's right or or good. I'm just saying that it's like – to me, it's not a surprise when I no, see something No, it's definitely like not that. a surprise, but I think the level of doubt that it creates in the in the process, it's it's I think it's really damaging, frankly. It and is. I think we're going to have years and years of this where all of a sudden the the types of the rules of the game I think have changed to the degree that when a party loses, what people can actually push for. I mean, look, the last time we had a contested election was with uh, without Gore lost against uh, um, George W. George W. Right, and there it never. I mean. That was a pretty fairly quick process. If you think about what happened there, and it was over like over like five hundred and fifty votes in one state. Well, quick, right? It, it was thirty eight days. It wasn't that quick. I mean, it was co- correct, but but if you, it was all centered on one state, one state, one yeah, state, one state, and where there was an actual issue with the actual counting. That was the whole Chad situation. Remember For that, sure, right? 100%. They, they, they had they had an issue, yep. or where the Supreme Court actually shut down the recount. That's right. And part of that actually was already shut down. Like the, the state itself didn't want to continue to recount because of because a number of Republicans were protesting the process of recounting. And that was just like on one state. I mean, the scale of the number and I was I was actually trying to find a count earlier today. The the count of the number of lawsuits that have transpired since election, and it's like fifty plus, of which I believe at this point all have been lost by one. And I think the one that they, that was one about is about being able to stand a little bit closer to actually seeing the election count. Like nothing of actual consequence. And to, but to and like I understand the, the comment. Look, when you have 160 million plus people voting, are you going to have some irregularities based on that many people across the percent? Yeah, mm-hmm. but anything nowhere. There's nothing within that nowhere near in terms of fraud at scale, etc. Which is why you keep on seeing these lost across the board. But there is all this doubt that's been painted, and the fact that we're still like as mm-hmm. of today, right, December 14, we're still like, is this now the final stage? How many more things have to go to the Supreme Court? Now we're not worried about whether or not the the House of Representatives is gonna is gonna all support what the electoral college is gonna do or not, and there's already a lot of talk there. People that sure. want to undermine it at I, that level. I, like I, I think this it's will, been uh, amazing to me that sure. this level of doubt for this long for someone that lost by so many electoral votes. Yeah, and yeah. against so many different states, and still so much doubt. Yeah, right? I, I I agree, and I think that the fact that the um, Supreme Court didn't take it up, the fact that the Largely to your point, the cases brought against the election have been, um, you know, basically refuted or declined or whatever the combination is. I think attests to the legitimacy of the system that we have. And I think it's a good thing. And I think after today, when we can, you know, like see the, the, the process play out with the Electoral College and all that, I do believe that things will begin to kind of normalize. I don't think, though, that we can have this conversation without talking about the media because in this study, that is clear as a bell, the media's kind of reaction to all of this, or, or I'm not reaction, I'm sorry, the people's perception about of the media. Can we the talk, media. Actually, let's talk about that a little bit, yeah, right? So a couple sure. of things, right, that came out. I agree with you. It's actually really surprising. Um, 
One is uh, 59% of Americans said that, that the news media was responsible and responsible meaning that they did a good job in its reporting of the election results and not, not 59. From, 59% overall, right? right? So almost two thirds, right? Mm-hmm. Of that, it was 93% of Democrats and then 21% of Republicans, right? So you can once again see a really big difference in terms of how they each felt, how responsible the, the media was in the right. election outcome. What's more interesting is how their view of the news sources actually changed, changed before right. election. That's that that even funnier. That's the funniest part yeah. of this thing. I'm like, okay, so so the, the- The Democrats thought they were even more responsible. <laughs> exactly, right? That, that sounds great. So one is like Republicans' opinions of cable news coverage of the elections saw the largest decrease, right? Moving from 45% being considered excellent or good mm-hmm. before the elections to about 29% being post-elections, right? So right. from 45 to 29, which is a pretty big drop, right? right. Conversely, of course, Democrats went from uh, 61% to 73%. So right. it's almost like like when, you, when you're when you trying to do a, uh, a, a judgment of like how, how good was the uh, refereeing of a game, right? Oh, yeah. It depends uh, on it whether or not great. my team won. If you won the game, <laughs> your team won. They were terrible. Right. They missed every right. call. Yeah. It's like... I mean, in some ways, it's such human nature. But that, when you see that this. is, that but is. It, but it was to me kind of hilarious. But I also think, in like now, without being funny, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the what, frankly, what I, what I believe the President Trump has done in terms of really turning on anyone that has gone against them, including Fox News. Mm-hmm. So I think, if anything, he's definitely created that. I think this is in part a result of that of really going after anyone that disagrees with them. I mean, look, I was and I was, I was trying to remember what was the name of the of the person who was in charge of elections under under his uh, administration, uh, who talked about it as being one of the safest and more secure oh, uh, presidential his, elections. Uh, uh, Krebs was his last name. I only remember that because we have a, an right. associate named Krebs as well, and him getting fired. Right today, yeah. it came out today that uh, President Trump just announced that uh, Will Barr is going to be uh, uh, leaving. He's right? resigned. Yeah, he's resigned, mm-hmm. and and part of the reason why that's important. Is because you know he set an investigation for the DOJ to to look into these irregularities. Came back and said no, we couldn't find anything. And of course, President Trump was not happy about that. And and the speculation was that he's going to be gone because of it. Right. And a guy who, by the way, by all accounts and by anyone that is on the other side of the conversation, felt that this guy was you know like right there, hand in hand with President right. Trump, and, to, to and do his right, his, his bidding, right, his bidding, right. Thank you. But Thank will you. The, but will the media now turn around and say, uh, you know what, we may have been wrong because now he's now he's resigned and he's very principled and whatever. It's like well, it's like so, well, that's, that's that's right, right. So is he or, principled or, because because he went against them or is he? That's my point. Is, is yeah. my point in talking about the media is that they have a big role to play in this. Okay. Um, I mean, we could talk about a number of different things. The Hunter, the Hunter Biden story. So it turns out Hunter Biden actually is being investigated yeah. for a number of different things, um, which, or, which he didn't want to make public, right? Because and that's fine. Look, but a, a, you know, I guess according to the DOJ, what they said there is that they it's 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 uh, they don't want to make public uh, any kind of investigation that may directly affect a political process, right? So makes sense. That's a that's a case where like okay, that makes sense. Which but it, they based him in a very different light than what. But it was exactly it was his Justice Department saying that coming to that conclusion that we don't want to politicize this, so we're not right. going to pursue it. Where Trump would have said, no, pursue it. It's going to oh, help me. Well, that's part. Of, I think that's you the know? reason why he's gone, though. Well. Okay, but what I'm saying is he can't be the evil ogre and a principled, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I agree with you. And, enforcer and, of the law and at the same time. And I think that's what makes this whole thing so complicated, right? The other and, one. And I also mm-hmm. think that is, that's the little that it takes, or a lot, but maybe the better way to say how quickly things can turn for anyone that disagrees with the president. 
Yeah, agreed. I think it's it's as quick as that. The, it's like you can be his best friend. Because the, the thing again, that gets seared is, in my mind mm-hmm. is is Will Barr walking with President Trump to the church to be able to take a photo up as they had just you know filming you know finished just like basically dispersing everyone and throwing things at them and getting rid of peaceful protesters to be able to go take a picture. And I remember right. seeing him like right. I would have never thought to ever see that where you have the head of the DOJ walking with them and it's something that's a very political moment. Yeah. Right. And that's the same guy who also, to your point, at the same time, had decided he was not going to make public this investigation that was happening to the son of the rival of, of President Trump. Despite the fact right? that it would have been hugely beneficial because, as it turns so out, I've seen some of the stats and a good chunk it's cr- of— it's, it's crazy. It's very crazy. And a good chunk of, the, of Biden's uh, eventual supporters did not were not aware of any of that kind of Biden story. Sure. Let me give you one other example, though, because I think this is even more germane about the media's responsibility and what I think drives some of these numbers. So— Today is significant because obviously the Electoral College voted. We now officially have president-elect. And, I, and look, it's maybe it's a little bit of, um, of uh, what do you call it, Monday morning quarterbacking. But we really should only call president-elects when they've been elected by the Electoral College. Like, that should have applied to Trump. It should apply to everybody. There should be a prospect or a uh, presumed winner until you're the president-elect, until you're the president. Like, we should follow that process. Suddenly, we've let the media declare Trump is the president-elect, Bush is the president-elect. There's a process to, to actually elect the president. But it's not, it's not suddenly, though, Charlie, right? Because it's December reality, 14th, that's is my a, point. No, no, no. Meaning that that process has, and look, it could have been the case maybe before I can remember as you know, a child, I'm sure maybe before that, where it wasn't the case, to your point, where they would wait until the Electoral College actually officially said this is the president-elect. But- from what I could ever remember in any presidential election that I've been alive for, it's always been called the second that the states are called, that becomes the president-elect. I didn't look this up, but my guess is that it's a more recent vintage than you think, that that idea. Maybe in the last, you know, 30 years, which is, you know, in a, in a country that's been around for 250, it's Maybe, not that yeah. long. Yeah. Anyway, my point is that we actually have a process to determine the president-elect, the electors vote. Today is the 14th. We have that. So here's the other thing that happened today, the 14th, is that we have a vaccine for the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. Pfizer's out with the vaccine. Now, I thought about that, um, Pfizer coming out with the vaccine in the context of what this study tells us about media and people feeling that they've been misinformed and all this other stuff. So I went back and I looked, just because we've kind of joked about it, but I Mm -hmm. went back and I looked at a couple of examples about how the media responded when President Trump said that the vaccine would come before the end of the year. Here's one from August, uh, from NPR. NPR in August said, quote, President Trump again said widespread distribution of a vaccine against the coronavirus would happen before the end of the year, directly contradicting Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield. Right. So they're basically saying he's completely going against the CDC and suggesting that that won't actually happen. Now, you can say, well, no, that was in reference to widespread distribution. Well, today in New York, New York today on the 14th received 72,000 doses and before the end of the year will receive another half a million doses. Mm-hmm. Just New York, right? So maybe you don't call that widespread, but like right. it's approaching availability, right? Here's the other approaching one. Approaching a billion, as you like to say. Approaching a billion. So here's another, here's another, <laughs> here's another one from NBC back in May. Yeah. This says, President Donald Trump has suggested that a coronavirus vaccine could come within months. Remember, this is May. Mm-hmm. Um, and prominent health experts and veteran vaccine developers say that is unlikely absent a miracle. Okay, his right. quote His quote says, "I th- this is Trump, I think we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. 
And then NBC goes on to say, but experts say that the development, testing, and production of a vaccine for public is still 12 to 18 months off and that anything less would be a medical miracle. And here we are on December 14th with a vaccine. So all that I'm saying is that we can't, like the media has gotten really, I think, like their, their emotions are showing over the last little bit. And my hope is with this Biden administration, because as I've joked with you before, like now we have a president that was like other presidents, super boring and nobody cares about. So like hopefully the, the, the media can go back to actually doing their job of reporting on journalism. But I think that they've got a big part to play in all of this mistrust that's out there among the people that are the electorate. Right. And I think that the part that I struggle with, because I, I definitely see your point and I think there is truth to what you're saying. But when I when I when I recall how President Trump handled these situations and more specifically how his own behavior, his own comments under undermine his own efforts is I really have a hard time feeling sorry for him. Right. When he publicly puts pressure to the head of the FDA to approve the, or saying that they're stalling and approving the vaccine to hurt his presidential election. It makes everyone feel like then you're just rushing through the process right, to the point where it. all these guys from actually from a number of these different pharmaceuticals came out and said, hey, we're not rushing anything. We're going to do we're going to take all the steps that we need to. Now, they were rushing. But to the point is, we're going to take the steps required yeah. to actually get there. Now, one of the things that I that I thought about in, in kind of remembering about the process they did for the for the vaccine is one of the factors that I think those probably doesn't get talked about enough is that in previous vaccine process, which all I think the average was like four years was the, was the fastest, which I think part of the reason why they, they said that it was going to take at least, you know, if you cut that in half, is amazing, is that it was, those trials just took a lot longer. Right. And in part because it was a lot harder for people to naturally catch these infections. Right, because especially when something can be deadly, they're not trying to just give it to them. Now, in this case, there was such a high infection in a lot of different areas that people were just catching much faster. So, therefore, it was easier. The to trial do. process right. actually accelerated because of that, which is a really interesting dynamic if you think about that, right? Um, well, that and there's you know, there's a lot of money at stake, and there's a for, lot, yeah, of, yeah, for sure, right? So, and also the fact that they started so quickly, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of maybe early, early on, if you, if you may recall. Some press that was that was that was put out actually recognizing a lot of the the doctors in China for actually documenting and sharing that broadly with the medical community of the of the actual um, I forget what it is, the, the gene code of this of this this disease that allowed everyone to start start working on the vaccine right away right so that also kind of helped you know move the process forward but you're right there's been there's so much distrust mistrust I'm sorry with President Trump and what he says. But in part because you have these two versions, you have Operation Warp Speed, where even if you think it's a hilarious name like I do, there was actually some really good things that were done with that, right? When you think about it, some real bets that, hey, we're going to, no matter what, like we're going to just place bets. We're going to order some of these. Sure, we're going to hack the we're process. Gonna, we're going to hack the process so that the second it gets approved, it's, a, it's already going out because mm-hmm. they don't, you don't have to sort of start production at that point. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then undermine that with, yeah, but they're not trying to get approved to undermine my election. So you're like in this constant struggle saying that, hey, don't worry about this thing that's going to go away. At the same time, as we're putting all this effort and time resources to get this going. And I think that's what creates that that it does. That, that mistrust. And, and, and it does. everything seems like it comes from a political standpoint, sure. which is kind of hard not to, not to see it that way when, when it comes from him. And, and I don't, you know, you said that um, that makes it, despite what I said may have been true, it makes it very hard for you to, to feel sorry for, for, for Trump. Nobody's, nobody's suggesting we should feel sorry for Trump. All that I'm suggesting is that the media's emotions have been worn on their sleeves for yeah. a while. And I think that that has 
added to people feeling like they don't know which way is up. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. That's all I'm saying. You know, the other thing that I looked at, uh, Charlie, and kind of figuring out this timeline, right? Because I was thinking, what was happening November 9th, right? It, it's, it's actually amazing because so much has happened in this time, mm-hmm. right? I went back and looked at November 9th. I'll give you just a quick read, readout of everything that was happening around the elections or November 9th, right? So we said it already. <laughs> it was actually really interesting looking at this. We talked about that at that point, the the race had been called for, mm-hmm. for Joe Biden because of the four states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Wisconsin had been uh, already called, the three states, I guess. Arizona was still out. Although and Georgia was still out, right? Georgia was still out in Arizona because Georgia did multiple recounts, right? Yeah. Um, and Arizona was still sort of going through that process, although it had been called by Fox News and, uh, and the AP at that point. Also during that, at that time is uh, Attorney General Will Barr had authorized the DOJ to investigate right, allegations of voting irregularities. Something that, by the way, the director of elections crime branch, the, literally the person who's responsible for looking at these kind of you know, allegations uh, of voting irregularities, quit because of that. Right? He like, left them like, forget it. I'm out of here. If you're going to do this because there's no proof, et cetera. Of course, since then, we know that they came back and so they didn't find anything. And, and now you know, Will Barr is gone because of it. In Georgia, the two Republican senators, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, who, by the way, are both in this Senate runoff rafe, both were calling for the resignation of the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, right, who's also Republican, for failures, once again, without any evidence, of his management of the election. So you have state senators calling out their, basically, state representatives uh, out of the race of the elections. In the media, uh, Fox News had... Cut away from the White House press secretary, Kelly McKinney, as she was throwing out McEnany. more. McEnany, thank you. Yeah. Because she was throwing out more of these claims about, about voter fraud. Fox News, once again, actually cut away from it because they, yeah, they said, like, yeah, we, can't even, we can't even show this anymore. This has gotten so bad. And, and what was yeah. most interesting to me, the last point, is that it was literally in the news that Senator Susan Collins from Maine had become the fourth elected Republican to formally recognize President elect Joe Biden. Fourth one. And I would love to say that that has changed a lot since uh, a month ago, November 9th, right? It's actually over a month. I think the imp- and it's not the case. I think the import- and that is yeah. so sad. Yeah, I think the important thing is what happens tomorrow on December 15th, right? Because the, the Electoral College has yeah. has done their constitutional duty, and let's let's see what happens um, after that. I think, by the way, the, the last piece on the data, yeah. which I think is really interesting— Having said everything that we just talked about, or how I have one more is, important thing on this. Okay. How You're probably going to the same thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is one of the points that came out is basically there's still uh, a lot of interest in hearing other, other's opinion. That's what I was going to say. Right. Which is, which is, in some ways, it's, it's, it's really great to hear. I'm very jaded when I hear that because how much people really want to want to actually hear the people's opinion. But the solid, solid majorities across party lines perceive the nation as great divided, and they'll most say they're interested in learning about the opinions of those with whom they disagree politically. So you have somehow along the middle of all this confusion, all the disagreement, all this partisan sort of point of view, this interest of wanting to hear more of the other person's opinion, uh, that especially people that disagree with them politically. And I, I don't know how much to believe that, to be honest. I don't know if that's no, the kind no. of thing that people I say think, just I, to I, say. But I think, you have, really I think in, the, in the context of this study, you have to believe it to the same degree you believe the other statistics in this study. I mean, it's like, you know, these are the same people answering the same questions. And so we have to at least at least consider it to the same degree of veracity as the other stuff. But I found that very interesting as well. I actually cut it out in my notes um, that uh, a quarter of all Americans – answered that they have a great deal of interest in learning about the opinions of people who they disagree with politically. 
a quarter of all Americans, about 23% of Democrats, about 34% of independents, and about 20% of Republicans. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then the degree to which they say a fair amount they want to learn about it is still like in the 50s. It's the majority, yeah, for everybody, across the board. And pretty consistent ab- among these different groups. So I think that's huge. Frankly, as a business person, I look at a graph like this and I see dollar signs because I, I, I think that, like that's the reason we did this podcast. Because right. I think that this is emblematic of the fact that people have a hunger for really understanding a variety of different points of views but we haven't had the opportunity to hear them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, creates a pretty interesting business opportunity. You so, know, uh, a few uh, episodes ago, you asked me the question, I think in this, as we were having this conversation, is, is what I thought it would take in order for us to kind of get off of this um, very heated moment in the political environment. Um, and, I, and I mentioned to you then, this is I think right before the election, is that I just didn't see how that could happen with President Trump continuing to be president. Yep. And I, I even in seeing that, I, I feel even more, even more strongly about that point. And at least, look, we could disagree whether or not to what degree people uh, voted for for president president elect Biden for he and for him or versus uh, against, against Trump, Trump. Mm-hmm. which I probably more in your camp than not in terms of very much in a, in a vote against Trump. At the same time, there. I think there is an opportunity to just bring down the volume a little bit, bring down the heat a little bit. For sure. And I hope and I hope this actually does happen, right? Because while I see this, and I can be very skeptical of this. It's kind of I put a comment like this in the category of, you know, people that when it comes to the new year say, Oh, this is the year that I'm gonna go out and get in shape and work out and the things that we all kind of wish happen and, and, and say, but it always worries me that it's just talk. Um, at the same time, if it is real, if people really do want to actually get more to a middle middle ground, I hope that, that actually does happen. I do too. And I think that, um, you know, I agree with your assessment that something, you know, massive has to change in order for us to have that reset opportunity so that we can get, you know, into these spaces and places where we can have this dialogue. So I do agree with that. And I hope that this is it. And I hope that the, you know, journalism and political parties kind of go to their rightful corners where we've had them for a while and maybe stay there for a bit so that we can have this discussion. One last stat, which I did think was interesting, um, is the assessment of the people in the survey in terms of their uh, perspectives on how internet companies addressed misinformation. Because I think that was another one that was like showed this massive divide. So what it basically said is that, and the question was specifically, do you think that Facebook and Google and all these companies went too far were about right or didn't go far enough in trying to prevent the spread of false information. I already know what the answer is. Well, but here's the thing, right? So just like the Republicans have this mass over index on these other questions here, Americans overall, a third of them, a third of them, Americans overall said that these platforms had gone too far Mm -hmm. and 25% said we're doing about right. Okay. Okay. Independence, 40% said, they went too far. Republicans, 66% said yep. they went too far. Democrats, the number's so small, I can't even read it. <laughs> In terms of them thinking that... <laughs> it's 2%. Actually. It's, like, it's literally... No, it's actually two, I just is it really? It's 2%. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's 2%. <laughs> That's a big swing. It's like, no, it's Facebook and Google, massive. they're just fine. <laughs> doing they're doing awesome. just great. But that, that goes right in line to what we talked about last week, right? Which is this, I think it was last week, where we, where we talked about this notion that, you know, many conservatives feel that their voice are the ones that are being stifled by these uh, internet companies. And by the way, this kind of actually helps make that point, both from both the Republicans or the conservative side and the liberal side. So, so it, it, this it, level of, of sort of 
disagreement and or agreement, depending on where you sit in the So does it mean that just the Democrats are just that much more vindictive? Because even though they only have 2% that say that the uh, internet companies did a bad thing, they nevertheless, they agree that they're the worst problem in our entire society. So like, right. So like at the same time, they're awful, but they didn't do, they didn't screw up on, uh, on the election misinformation. I I still think that, yeah, because I think both things actually hold true is that there is mass distrust. Uh, yeah, distrust and uh, or mistrust, mistrust, and uh, at the same time feeling that they didn't, you know, to some some extent is like they, uh, you know, were about right. It still is like the biggest issue here is that sixty percent they didn't go far enough. That's their biggest issue. They still feel that too many fringe voices uh, are going up putting this conspiracy theory. So the so the mistrust is for a different reason, mm-hmm. and the mistrust is for not policing enough some of these extreme voices. Where for the conservative side, the mistrust comes from feeling that they're being over, they're being over, policed, over, police. Yeah, but the outcome is the same. Right, they still feel like the, yeah, that's these companies are, are that's interesting. Are the wrong position for sure. Okay, well, that's we, a we, lot. we could go on that one for a while, but I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good think, yeah. Look, I, I again, I think that here on December fourteenth, uh, leading to hopefully tomorrow, when people you know begin to recognize and speak in the right way about President Elect Biden. I think we have an opportunity to bring this thing back together. But again, the big thing for me coming out of all of this, it seems that people want to hear about stuff that they don't necessarily agree with. And we need to create those spaces and places. And so I'm happy about that. Great. All right. Shake it off. Shake it off. We have to create like a new a, a segment to just shake it off. All right. Um, courage or cringe. So we've got a, 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 a hodgepodge of stuff in here. Yeah. Where do we uh, where do we start with uh, Governor Northam? I think yeah. So Virginia Governor Northam announced some new coronavirus restrictions on uh, this past Thursday, uh, I guess of last week. And as part of this, asked Virginians of faith to practice health precautions when attending church services. Right, assuring them that they do not have to sit in the church pew for God to hear your prayers. So, and I quote, he mentioned, "This is a holy time for multiple faith traditions." Um, uh, Christmas is two weeks away. The holidays are typical times of joy and community. We get we gather together, we celebrate our faith, and we celebrate with family. And he continued, but this year we need to think about what is truly the most important thing. Is it the worship or the building? For me, God is wherever you are. You don't have to sit in the church pew for God to hear your prayers. Uh, and worship with a mask on is still worship. Worship outside or worship online is still worship. Now, the reason why he's saying, talking about all these things is, in part, the governor is blaming at least some of the spread of the virus in Virginia to some congregations that he said acted carelessly in observing the faith and precautions, saying that while most churches across the state had done the right thing, and I quote, right, some have failed to social distance and, and wear a mask. Now, having said all that, the governor is not imposing uh, additional restrictions uh, on house of worship. As part of these new state restrictions, now some of that comes directly from what happened in New York, which is the Supreme Court there ruled in favor of several New York churches and synagogues that challenged some of the pandemic restrictions on religious services. Now that's a a topic that was heating up over the summer, mm-hmm. uh, and yet a number of mm-hmm. these of these churches that were pushing back uh, on Governor Cuomo specifically over right. there, right? And some of the the policies they put in place in terms of of not being able to attend and. Uh, but there's been a lot of back and forth. I mean, there's been a number of different articles that have come out that actually talk about uh, what they believe are some of these hotspots that were gen- you know, created because of some of this, uh, uh, not just churches getting together, but getting together without social distancing, without masks, et cetera. Uh, and then you have all this dynamic in the Supreme Court coming and saying, wait a minute, like th- they have the rights as well. And you can't just go on and sort of stop people from being able to uh, to gather in order, for, in, order, in order to pray. So. Thoughts on that? Obviously, it's an interesting one, right? Because he's kind of using, he's trying to use 
faith ideology uh, to be able to make his case of why it's actually not needed to be there. And um, which also is a message about, you know, people being careful. But what is, as someone definitely with deep faith, mm-hmm. what was your reaction to seeing a, you know, these kind of comments come out of, of the governor of, of Virginia? Well, so for me, I mean, I'll start with the end in mind. So it was definitely cringe um, for a couple of different reasons. I think the issue with the First Amendment or the discussion around the First Amendment is whether or not, as it relates to religion, the First Amendment allows us to actually worship in a space or whether it allows us to live our faith wherever we are. Because there's a big yeah point of view about that, right? It's like, oh, yeah, if you go in that— That's a good way to distinguish it. Yeah, I like that. There's people who think that if you—you know, they're fine with it so long as you do it in, in your building, but the moment it's out here, then I've got other things to say. And there's people who say, like, wait a minute, I live my faith wherever I am, and so the First Amendment should apply to my practice of the faith wherever it happens to be. You wouldn't be surprised I find myself in the latter camp, not the former. But anyway, the big thing for me that was the kind of the, – the thing that made it cringy for me was that, you know, uh, that Governor Northam – and I have no idea what this man's faith is or whether or not he has one. I have no clue. But ju- I think based on his comment, I have to imagine he's fairly religious, I would think. Because if he wasn't I, at all and this comes I out, like that's I don't very know. odd to me. I don't, I don't know. But he's making some, you know, some, some theological terms about – where God is, where God isn't, what we need, what we don't. He literally says, for me, God is everywhere. Right, is, of course. Is, is wherever you are. Like, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I think for it, sure. but, if someone wasn't religious, like, but, I would have a hard time. I, I, and I believe, that, he, I, I believe he is religious. My point is, I don't know what kind of faith tradition he has. Oh, I don't yeah, know if he's yeah, a yeah. Protestant, whatever sure. he is. I have no idea. But anyway, my point is that, you know, um, as you've said before, people that are in positions of authority and power, CEOs and otherwise, they when they speak, like, they speak. It matters. It yeah. matters, right? Yeah. So here you have the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia basically saying that, look, you know, the way that I view God, he's kind of everywhere. So you don't need to worry about sitting in the pew and you don't need to worry about this other stuff. It's really about God is wherever you happen to be. Now that may be fine and dandy for him. And, you know, from a theological standpoint, I would say you're right. God is everywhere because of course God made everything. So clearly he can be everywhere, but there is a value to community. There is a value to liturgy. There is a value to symbols. There is a value to the church building and icons and stained glass windows and altars and all the things that remind us of our faith. And so to just say, you know, hey, you don't need those things because God doesn't really care, which is kind of how I read it, is a very, you know, uh, anti sort of sacramental kind of view of the world, which is fine. It's his opinion. My cringe comes as this is the governor of a a commonwealth, right? So like we're imposing these restrictions, but, you know, and we're going to ask you guys to do better because really you don't need to be in a church in order to worship God. And that's where it was like, it just kind of started going into this overreach area that concerns me because frankly, like, I, I don't want these guys saying how people should worship. And I don't think that it's their job to do so. So for me, it was a, a cringe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I get that. It's a, it's a tricky one because on the one hand, he's trying to walk a, a very fine line of trying to be prescriptive of what he truly believes is needed in order to try to curb the the spread of the virus, et cetera, uh, and talking about it in the context of faith without coming out more aggressively and saying, hey, you should not do this. You should not be in person at a church without a mask, et cetera. So trying to find the right way. So I think what he was trying to do is, is make it very personal. And, I, and that's why I, I have to imagine that he's religious. To your point, we don't know what, what he actually is. Um, I could definitely see the 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 issue with it. I could see someone like anyone that's very that's very uh, um, um, religious having issue with how he talks about this. Um, 
But ultimately what he said, I didn't find anything that wrong in what he said specifically, um, which is why I put it more on the courage side because you're trying to find a in what I thought was middle-of-the-road approach to try to encourage people to, while you still practice, we just want you to be safer um, and and sort of remind people that you also, like, just because you're not in, in your church doesn't mean that you're no longer, uh, you know, uh, religious or that God is going to be upset with you. I'm obviously making up words here. Sure. Uh, not exactly what he said, but I, I take it more from that standpoint and trying to find a, a sort of a middle ground of saying this and, and using his personal faith. I wish I knew a little bit more about what his actual personal faith was. Because depending on, on him personally, if he's a very religious person, I think then this is more courage than less courage. If he's not religious at all, by the way, if he's not religious and he says this, 100% courage. Yeah. Like, then what are you talking about? I mean, I could But be, if he's someone I, that is like very yeah. religious, I could actually give him a little bit of credit of trying to use his personal faith as a way to communicate this. Because he's not discouraging people from, from, from not getting together. He's just saying, simply saying that just know that you can still be a practicing whatever right? Um, and do these things and still be safe and still try to do the things that you can to make sure that we are able to curb this pandemic. My guess is that, and this is a guess, but I'll try to confirm it before our next show. My guess is that he's probably Christian and he's probably one, uh, a faith tradition, sort of non-Catholic Christian. So like a Baptist or, you know, some kind of thing like that. That'd be my guess. Um, and, you know, and again, I think that his um, opinions are fine in the context of issuing a decree and then consequently not just issuing a decree but also laying a little bit of blame on on you know uh, religious congregations. I think it 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 has that vibe of overreach. It definitely made me uncomfortable because again, I, I just I feel like you know secular government is one thing, and if you want to be like a pastor, a religious leader, or something, great, go for it. But you know, never the twain shall meet, and I think that's enshrined in our constitution. Mm-hmm. So it, it it just it just really bugged me. Yeah, not because it was a, it wasn't offensive what he said necessarily. It wasn't it right. wasn't even that. It was just like where if you kind of follow the puck like where it goes, I was like, I don't want to go there. That's that's the reason yeah, why I gave I it a think, courage. And I think that's that's why I gave it a courage simply because I didn't think that what he said specifically he was trying to be offensive. I think the way he said it was was actually pretty once again trying to find a middle ground and saying this without making it a, a like an actual uh, um, decree or policy yep. here they have to do. Yep. So that's probably the reason why I'm more on the on the courage side. Okay, very good. So we're batting five hundred. As usual, you, you start usual. us off in complete disagreement, Jesus. <laughs> Good job. All right, so uh, what's next? Goya. So we talked about Goya, Goya. a number of times uh, a while ago. El Sazon. So I thought it was, uh, frankly, made me laugh when I saw this headline. That's why I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I like talking about things that Trolls. make me laugh. Trolls. Um, so Goya CEO Robert Unanie uh, referred to uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as the company's, and I put in quotes, employee of the month. Ouch. Claiming that the Congresswoman's July tweets about making her own adobo um, boost, uh, boosted sales, right? Yeah. This was on a conservative podcast, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was, he was being interviewed, right? So, yeah. so when she, so basically, and I quote what he, he said is that when she boycotted us, mm-hmm. our sales actually increased a thousand percent, right? Um, that's what he said during a podcast or in an interview in the Michael Berry show, which you, you tell me, I actually don't never heard of the uh, Michael I Berry never show. heard of him either. Um, then he continued to say, she got employee of the month for bringing attention to Goya and our adobo. Um, he had a referring to the, obviously the company's popular seasoning mix. Adobo is a type of mix that people use and a lot of different types of, of meats, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing, he, the thing is here is that they're a private company, so none of their sales figures are actually public. 
Um, but it was interesting him sort of play, play, you know, placing both the blame and credit, I guess, to her and uh, helping drive sales. And on Tuesday, uh, Ocasio-Cortez tweeted that she didn't call for a boycott. Her original tweet was part of a backlash that Goya faced. By the way, across the board, it wasn't just Alexander Cortez that actually, sure. you know, basically sure. pushed back. A yeah. bunch of people. We've covered this on the show before. Yeah, yeah. right. That basically happened in, in, the, in the summer after uh, Unanue, Un, I can't remember his last name, Unanue. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Unanue. I mean, Unanue mm-hmm. uh, spoke at the White House uh, praising Dr- uh, President Donald Trump. And he had been, by the way, invited to the White House as part of this administration Hispanic Prosperity Initiative, which, and we talked about this before, initiative that got completely, like, overlooked because that moment kind of took over the entire thing where they were actually recognizing uh, some of the Hispanic, uh, um, basically, folks in industry and the work that they've done there, right? right? Uh, The other thing, just to finish off on, on, Mm -hmm. on him specifically, is days after the speech, uh, Unanue went to on Fox News and said that he was not apologizing mm-hmm. uh, for his statements and mm-hmm. he called the ensuing boycott movement suppression of speech right so yeah. he was pretty firm in his stance um, and you kind of saw both things you saw people that were very quickly jumped on that and said we're boycott- boycotting um, um, Goya. Goya because of this mm-hmm. and you had a number of people looking up their own seasoning looking at, at literally promoting competing products um, and then you also saw, and by the way, in my own personal network, I saw people immediately step up and say, no, 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 like we're not going to try to undermine the Latino business leader, Latino business. And we're even more supportive of, of him now because of this. So I actually, in my own, once again, we talk about living in echo chambers, right? But in my own personal network, I actually saw both camps. I saw yeah. a camp that was immediately, well, because you have, I saw a camp that well, was, and by the way, the camp that was for him was, was definitely a Florida camp. That was probably more of my Republican uh, friends, yeah. who were very aggressively pushing but you had, to uh, support his his point of view. But you had multiple dynamics in the sense that even if you disagreed with him, you didn't want to like necessarily um, uh, penalize a Latino owned business, yeah, sure, and a Lapi- Latino employer too, because they yeah. employ thousands of people. I, I just I just love the trolling employee of the month. I, frankly, that's the reason I want to talk yeah. about it because I think it's hilarious. Do you want to Do you want to go first on no, this? No, one? Uh, no. I mean, go ahead, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. so um, and this may surprise you. I I I, I give this one a cringe. And the reason for it, I mean, look, and I don't, I, I didn't listen to the whole show, so I'm not, I, I, I did listen to the clip when he actually mentioned this. So it is admittedly out of context. Who knows what they were talking about? They could have been talking about something for a half hour and then suddenly this came up. But my point is this is a little bit of old news. It's a little bit of old news. So it's like this happened back in June, July. It's a little bit of picking a fight. Yeah. For no reason. You've got a private company and the private company, you can't verify. He said a thousand percent increase. That's that's weird. Like what? Like that just sounds like it's an exaggeration. Like you would say it went up 340. It reminds you of somebody. (laughs) Sounds great. Sounds awesome. Approaching a million, <laughs> approaching a billion. But no, my, my oh, point. I was actually talking about Trump, but oh, just to be sorry. <laughs> I thought you were talking about me. My point is that if you had a percentage, you would say, "Hey, you know what? Our sales increased by three hundred and forty-seven percent." Right. To say it went up by a thousand, it's just weird. So I, is, I, yeah. I'm not sure I believe it. I think he was just saying that he, he was kind of making the point that, like, "Hey, we had a lot of sales. Great. Okay." But you're kind of picking a fight. It's kind of old news. You're kind of doing it to be to get attention. It just. It. It just. It feels a little bit like creepy uncle to me. It, it it does. It's just like it's a little weird. And look now, at the same time, I went back and I read the tweets that AOC did. I know she didn't use the word boycott, but when you say, you know, I'm now going to look up how to make adobo on Google instead of going and buying the product. Sure. The inference is I'm no longer buying your products. 
Oh, for also sure. Also known yeah. as a boycott. So for her to say, I'm, I never called for a boycott <clears throat> is mean, yeah. so lame. But, I, I agree with you. But, 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 I think that on the whole, given all the circumstances, this one for me is a cringe. Great. Um, I mean, look, I, I, uh, I think I agree with you 100%. I mean, look, it's interesting in this case is that I think to your point, Having this, uh, the CEO of Goya come out and talk about this when you're a private company, I, I don't, I don't understand what he is, tr- what, what the end goal is of, of bringing that up, right? Six uh, months later, six months later, and by the way, putting it all specifically on her, on Ocasio Cortez, right? Because it wasn't just her. Let's be honest; like her is probably the most subtle <laughs> of the boycott calls. If she maybe she doesn't want to recognize it as a boycott, but it definitely kind of sounds like it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people that actually disagree with what he said. A lot of his own consumers that didn't disagree with what he said. Now, if that net net increase or the net result was an actual increase in sales, great, good for you. Like that's she, awesome. She's got eight and a half million followers on Instagram, though. So let's not yeah, underestimate yeah, yeah. her power to be. A- I, I agree, but it, but it wasn't just because of her. It wasn't her alone. She's not the one that started. It was an immediately outcry from a lot of people. As it relates to this, this comment, this was immediately controversial, right? Mm-hmm. And it was controversial because of what he said, not because Ocasio Cortez uh, complained about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was immediately tied to it right away because of her comments. Right. But yeah, to bring it up now and to try to try to troll her because of this, it, it just yeah, it, it seems like you're just like I agree with you. Actually, I think it's a really, really good way to describe it. You're picking a fight for no real reason that. Ultimately, I don't know how that helps you win. And I don't know how that helps you get better with the, with your current yeah. consumer base. It doesn't ingratiate you with really anybody. I, I mean, look, I, I'm sure they had good sales or whatever. I don't think it was a thousand percent. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, it doesn't add anything to the conversation. Yeah. And so I agree. All right. So we're so we agree. Wow. That's there awesome. Back to 500. Thank you. All right. So um, we got one more. The Cleveland soon to no longer be called Indians. <laughs> The Cleveland Indians. <laughs> the baseball players formerly known as Indians. Yeah. Yes. So the, Cle- the Cleveland Indians are dropping their name after 105 years. Sheesh. Uh, so the team could stop using the Indians name as soon as the 2022 season. So not, not next year, but the, but the following year. Uh, now, Cleveland retired the use of his former cartoon mascot known as Chief Wahoo. After the 2018 season. Um, that was the famous face on the, on oh, the yeah, baseball yeah. caps and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Immortalized in the movie Major League. Which it's is the slightly, slightly racist looking face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was always all over their their, uh, their uniforms. Just, their, do you remember their, that movie from I the do. 80s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a bit outside. Yes, Bob yes, Uecker. Yes, yes, I do remember that very well. Uh, with uh, Charlie Sheen. That's and, right. And um, uh, the guy from Blade. Uh, Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, something yeah. Behringer get his name um mm-hmm. so the nfl was in the by the way this is part of a broader movement right i mean right. You, we've seen this year alone uh the nfl franchise known as now the washington football team which was before the washington Redskins, uh decided to change their name and literally couldn't come up with a new name so they just, <laughs> just called the football team so i think it's great uh but they're, they're actually doing pretty well which is which is kind of interesting you know so yeah. maybe sometimes you need to get rid of that to uh to be better um but unlike Washington, this uh, the baseball team for Cleveland is going to keep its, its current name while it determines what a new one will be, right? Now, there are other professional sports teams that have Native American terms in their names and imagery. So examples of that would be the Atlanta Braves, the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs. All of which have still stated, even as recently stated, that they have no plans to change to change their name. So you go first. Cleveland Indians. No, no, no. You go uh, first. I think the Cleveland Indians, honestly, in my mind, is this is probably one that is long overdue. 
um, I think the biggest offense was their mascot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that cartoonish looking, like it reminds me, you know what it reminds me of their, their mascot of the old Bugs Bunny cartoons? Like I swear that same face Speedy was Speedy Gonzalez? Used, was, yeah, Speedy Gonzalez. I have someone call me Speedy Gonzalez before. And I really? Was, yeah, long, yeah in, in business. You kick, you kick him in the balls? Uh, and it's funny because they thought it was funny and I looked at him like, and it was a, that mean moment of, okay, maybe I've kind of stepped on it, but yeah. I didn't even respond to it. Um, but I had people kind of, I had one person say that to me. <laughs> Who says oh, that? that guy, that's, um, yeah, that's it's just so ridiculous, right? But, but mm-hmm. it is, I mean, I, I think that's actually part of the reason why I think it's, is long overdue is that yeah. these things do influence culture. They influence how we think about, it. they normalize things that we should be not normalizing, right? So mm-hmm. having that kind of cartoon mascot of this, like, you know, character with a super large nose, very red face, that is obviously a cartoon. And once again, mm-hmm. it's probably more indicative of a bu- old Bugs Bunny cartoon from the 50s or before that. Not great. And, um, and but, I, but that so happened I think before today, though. I mean, that, that did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I see that sort of part of a progression where mm-hmm. it kind of started with that and, and now is ending with, with the name Indians. Um, and frankly, I just... I have probably a little bit less issue with the name Indians. Having said that, you know, we know from history that it's actually not really the right term anyway, right? I mean, why that came about, right? And, you know, in, in when when they came here thinking that they had gone to India, and that's why they call people, you know, folks as Indians, like that's, that name kind of stuck, sort of, sort of, you know, got stuck since then. So to move away from it now, I think it moves it to a better place. I like it. I like being getting rid of it. I think the fact that it takes so long for some of these things, uh, you know, to take place is, is kind of amazing to me in this day and age. But I do put that in a different category than some of these other ones. Now, I'll be the first to admit I'm not well, I'm not versed enough into some of these other categories. But when I think about some of the different tribes and those are their name of the tribes are used as the actual mascot or something that could be more as a position of strength rather mm-hmm. than a position of, of, of racism or making fun of someone. So, so when I put up, when I think of Redskins versus Blackhawks, I put those in completely different categories, mm-hmm. right? Blackhawks are being a tribe, mm-hmm. Redskins being a nickname of, of a group. So in the same case that you have the um, San Diego, is it San Diego Aztecs? I, f- I forget what it is in college football. Um, it's one of them, right? That has the Aztecs. I'm, one of them has it. Yeah, right? I don't know. So to me, it'd be like that. It's calling someone the, the, the Aztecs versus the Wetbacks. Significant difference. Now they could be both be speaking about the same people, but I yeah. put them in very different category. Now, I, if we had someone that was Native American here with us, they would feel very different. I don't know, right? And and frankly, part of my point of view would be, well, let's ask people that are actually you. them, and let's thank ask them you. how they feel about it. Yes, thank you. Um, but ask and a wide swath of them, a not wide just one, of, right? Because that's part of the problem, right? Is that sometimes these things get you know, driven by a single person or not. But yeah. that's why I put this more in the courage, not even courage. I, I put it cringe that it took so long, mm-hmm. but I but I sort of applaud them for the move, you know, even if it took them a while. It's funny that you say that about the Blackhawk versus the Chiefs or something like that, right? The distinction there being that we're identifying a given tribe and we're raising that tribe up and we're giving that tribe some visibility and some love as opposed to maybe trying to cash in on something that's a bit of a novelty, right? I think that's the sort of distinction that you were trying to make. No, I'm distinguishing, especially in the case of Redskins, a clear racist term yeah. versus the actual name of a tribe or something where you're you're recognizing them because of who they are. So that's why I'll okay. make the distinction so, between <clears throat> Aztecs will be a good one. And I think mm-hmm. I want to say the San Diego Aztec, I think it's for, for college football. Uh, San Diego State maybe is one of those um, versus calling someone the wetbacks. Like I will have an issue with that. <laughs> That's not. That's, See what I'm saying? Like that would be have. kind of a problem. San Diego, San Diego State. San, San Diego State. State. Oh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, so, so anyway, my, my point in bringing that up is, I agree with you. I think that um, 
I think that the idea of just having this very generic, very kind of marketing, sort of very, you know, again, it's like the sombreros or the, you know, the the arepas. The it's like so distant and kind of like we're going to try to find that one word that maybe we we know and we're going to try to cash in on it is different than actually a, a tribe name or something that's really trying to elevate and raise it up. Now, having said that. The Washington football team is still called the Washington football team. And my fear is that they become some other thing that loses the opportunity to actually raise up Native American people. Because say what you want about the Redskins name. Nevertheless, it at least oriented your mind to the fact that they were Native Americans. Now, the Washington football team does nothing. It's this generic vanilla. And by the way, yes, they're leading the NFC East, but like. The, they have a six and seven record and they're on top of that league. It's not like they're great, okay? But they're just they're on top of their league because the entire league is terrible. That but division my, is, is terrible. The yeah. division is terrible. But my yeah. point is that like I really hope they do become the Washington, you know, Sioux. But, or, but, but, but you think the Reskis name raised Native Americans? No, no, no. My, no, my point. My point is the Washington football team does nothing. Oh, yeah, about yeah, yeah. A, about Native Americans. I mean, it just, and, it's, and, and the it's person, so half baked is the problem. Fine, right? like but, you could have like. But but yeah, that, that's my point. And and the person, what I understand about the Redskins, even though that's not what this courage or cringe is about, but the right. Redskins uh, logo and all that stuff, and and there was Native Americans that were involved in those decisions. So like, but anyway, my point is that now they went from having something that was offensive to many, to some not, but whatever, it was offensive to many, to now this generic name. And my hope is that they go back and do something that honors Native Americans. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my, but, yeah, but like, I don't, but great. I don't think they will. I don't yeah, think they will. Yeah. I think they'll call themselves like I mean, the, the, the fact that they were the four leaf clovers or something. It'll is, just be like some. Be, I mean, this is a, really a point of of like of issue for so many years. And you tell me that you never thought about what an alternate name could have been. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, oh, screw it, we're changing the name. What's a new name? I have no idea. We'll figure it out next year. Like, what? So for that stuff, at least you can say the the, the Cleveland Indians. At least they're saying, "Hey, okay, it's, it's so let's, time let's get to, to the, figure out a new name." So let's, let's, get, at least let's give get, ourselves a little bit of a window here. Let's get to the Cleveland Indians. So you said that they've been the Indians for 105 years, right? 105 years, which yes. is extraordinary. But you know what? I I looked this up. This franchise has had about a dozen names. They were the Bluebirds, the Broncos, the Napoleons, the Rustlers, the Spiders. Eventually, they became the Indians. You know why? Because of a player named Louis Sakalexis, who was a Native American who played in Cleveland in 1897 to 1899. So like, you know, a long time ago. But they basically called the team the Indians because this guy played for a, a club called the Cleveland Spiders. And they decided that they wanted to, I guess they called the Spiders the Indians as like a, because he was on the team. Right. right. And so they said, like, well, we'll call the whole franchise the Indians. And so the name stuck. Anyway, my point is that the, 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 the genesis of the term was an actual Native American, okay, who played in the league in 1897. And depending on how you look at this, because other people have different theories, he may have been the first Native American to ever play in the MLB. Okay. Right. So now we're jettisoning him from this. Would it be awesome to actually like Name honor the, his tribe? The Sokolexis? Of what he actually was? Yeah, I don't know what his tribe was. Right. That'd be cool. Like imagine if he was Asian American. <laughs> let's, what let's, would be the name there? They will come up with him from that time? He was, um, uh, he was from the Penobscot tribe. P-E, Penobscot, which I've never heard of. 
He was a Penobscot. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. It does not. I think the branding <laughs> is not, not going to work on that. Probably why they went with that one. But they went. But they, they would have gone with Redskin. It was already being used. <laughs> but my point is, and, and again, I don't know anything about Native Americans, so I decided to do a little bit of digging, and I right. went to um, the National Museum of the American Indian mm-hmm. in the Smithsonian Institute. And specifically, there is a literal, like, giant display that says, what is the correct terminology? American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Native? The answer is, from the National Museum of the American Indian at the Smithsonian Institute, it says, all of these terms are acceptable. The consensus, however, is that whenever possible, to your point, Jesus, Native people prefer to be called by their specific tribal name. Sure. In the U.S., Native American has been widely used but is falling out of favor with some groups, and the terms American Indian or Indigenous American are preferred by many Native people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm thinking to myself, here's a baseball team that was named after an actual Native American, or in this case, according to the Smithsonian, an American Indian, because that's the preference that they have, and we're getting rid of, who's getting rid of this term? How many Native Americans are responsible in this getting rid of this term, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I bet you it's zero. I bet you it's zero Native Americans uh, are responsible. I, to I don't agree with that. that okay. I think that's, yeah. I'm gonna, well, it sounds that. awesome. I'm going to research <laughs> this. sounds awesome. You should. I'm going to research this. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't, my point is that, <laughs> my point is it's cringe for me, okay? Right. For a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it seems that mm-hmm. the Native American community prefers the term American Indian or Indian and we're getting rid of that and yet and we're losing another opportunity to do honor to these people. Now again, I agree with you on the the uh whatever you mentioned his name was, the the mascot. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I agree with you. Chief Chief Wahoo. Chief Chief Wahoo. <laughs> Love the name Wahoo. <laughs> <laughs> Speedy Gonzalez. Oh, um, my, yeah. So I agree with you on any, that. Any sports team right now that think about Speedy Gonzalez being the mascot, don't. Just, don't. Just stop. Just right stop. Now. Just stop. Stop in your tracks. Stop. But again, I, I think they've gone too far with the Indians. I think you could have done a rebrand. You could have found a new mascot. You could have done whatever. But there's nothing wrong with the term Indian. And I feel that now you're making it a dirty word. Hmm. Okay. I, I, look, this is, this is the case where I definitely would love to get some additional perspective of someone that, of people that are Native American, because I know for a number of these teams, there have been quite a bit of protests over years. Now, maybe all of it was all centered around the, the, the mascot, because that was very, very controversial. Um, but there's been, this is not a new thing. There's been a call to change the name, the mascot, et cetera, for a while. Um, to your point has, you know, the opinion about what terminology is changed over years. And maybe now it's actually more, more acceptable. Yeah, Maybe. I don't know. It, it still feels like part of a progression that probably should have happened a while ago. Okay, so I'm a cringe on that. You're a courage, it sounds like. So we're going to end at a third, 0.33. Is that our average today? I, did I, actually, say, I thought I said cringe just because it took them so long. But, I mean, I, I agree with what they're doing. It just You you think it's courageous or changing the name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, I, they're I getting rid of Indians. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I definitely I think it's a cringe. Okay, okay, so then we, whatever. You know, look, we uh, some weeks we go up, some weeks we go down. This week we went down. We're, we're like the Gallup poll. That's it. <laughs> Apparently. Any uh, words of wisdom, Jesus? Uh, no, 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 no words, no words of wisdom. You're completely unwise today. Uh, unwise, yes. I yes. think for me, the only thing that I go back to is spaces and places to have discussion with people that you don't necessarily agree with are at a premium. And I think that the data in our first study showed that. And I think that we 
into 2021, God willing, we're moving into a moment where we can have more of those kinds of conversations. You know what's interesting is uh, the thing that my only point of wisdom, because I was having a conversation earlier today with one of our advisors for, you know, one of the, the ventures that we're launching. And um, we talked about this, that I think I really am hopeful that December 14th is a, a point of inflection for our trajectory as a country um, for a number of reasons. One is, and you, we actually talked about it both today, today already. One is the Electoral College uh, officially saying that, you know, President-elect Biden has, has been, been elected, you know, is now the president-elect. And number two is the, the first uh, uh, vaccines were, were given out uh, today. And look, we've had a rough year. I mean, there's no way to kind of go about it. There's so much uncertainty across a number of different things. And I'm hopeful that with today, we hopefully are, are starting to move in a path in a new direction. Still plenty of risks, still plenty of issues, reasons why we may disagree and, and, and not being in the same place. But I'm hopeful that people use it as an opportunity to literally turn the page and start fresh. So I'm maybe a little bit overly optimistic. But when I when those two things kind of where I was reflecting on that earlier today, uh, on those two things happening, all happening in the same day. And I am hopeful that we are at that inflection point where you see a clear change in direction of where we've been to where we're going. And I hope we all take advantage of it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll remind everybody to check out sofisa.org, the sponsor of this episode, S-O-F-E-S-A dot O-R-G. Help a kid um, celebrate Christmas this year. And, um, you know, keep keep your uh, thoughts and feedback coming in. We've gotten some good feedback on the show lately from some some folks. And, you know, definitely reach out to us. You can reach us at blackbrown.us and let us know how you think we're doing. Um, always a privilege and a pleasure to be with you today. And we look forward to seeing you again on our next episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>